Welcome to the Ralston College podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today, my guest is the former dean of Harvard College and the Gordon McKay Research Professor of Computer Science, Harry Lewis. Lewis has been at Harvard since he began his undergraduate degree there in 1964. So he's been on the inside of our oldest and most renowned American institution of higher education for more than half a century. He's been dean of the college, dean of the engineering faculty, taught and advised thousands of students, including both Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, and studied the history of that university over its nearly 400 years. It is indeed his very devotion to Harvard that makes his diagnosis and critique of higher education, and of Harvard in particular, so powerful. Today we talk about his book, Excellence Without a Soul, How a Great University Forgot Education, and also about what advice he has after five decades of teaching undergraduates for young people starting out on their education today. Much of that advice rings true at any age. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. I have the great pleasure today to have Dr. Harry Lewis with me on the Ralston College podcast. Professor Lewis is the Gordon McKay Research Professor of Computer Science at Harvard University. Thanks so much for joining me today, Harry. Pleasure to be here, Stephen. Harry, you've been observing and teaching and thinking about higher education for uh, quite a long time. Uh, for those of our listeners who who don't know you yet, can you give us just a little introduction to yourself and your own uh, relationship with education uh, from from the beginning until the present? All right. Oh, it it's uh, it does seem like a long story. So so. Uh, so I went to college thinking I was going to be a pure mathematician and, and was disabused of that in the sort of honors <clears throat> math course that I took. But I actually had before that uh, had a very classical education in secondary school. I went to a, I went to a school that taught me Latin and Greek, and uh, I arrived actually in, in college knowing, uh, knowing more ancient Greek than I really knew of higher mathematics. But uh, I somehow had a romantic idea about mathematics and decided that's what I was going to do. And I, I, you know, when I discovered that I wasn't as good a mathematician as I thought I was, I, I had to find something else to do. And I, there were computer programming was just beginning as a thing that undergraduates could do. And so I, I, I fell into that and, and, uh, and enjoyed it. And one thing led to another and wound up making a career out of it. So I, I, uh, I joined the faculty at Harvard in 1974 and uh, spent a couple of stints in my academic career as a dean of this or that, dean of the Harvard College for a bit and dean of engineering for a bit, and uh, but mostly teaching and um, developing the the, the the program in computer science and being an institutional citizen in in uh, in, a, in other ways. So I've just recently retired from uh, from teaching, but I'm still uh, still still writing and and will still actually be doing some teaching in in retirement. After your time as the dean of Harvard College, you wrote a a, a very widely read book, the title of which was 
Excellence Without a Soul, How a Great University Forgot Education. And uh, one can imagine that that was, a, that was quite a uh, provocatively titled book, uh, given that you had just finished uh, your term as the Dean of Harvard College. What led you to write that book? What are the problems that you, and I, and I want to just preface for our listeners, I know that you have a great and deep and abiding love for uh, your alma mater and for the place you have spent your whole career teaching. And so uh, that makes the the criticism or sense of problems within that institution all the more provocatively stated. So what 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 was going on there? So, and you're absolutely right. I, I, I love higher education. I love Harvard in particular. It's, it's the, the only education I have post-secondary was, uh, was, was from Harvard. And um, it's an extraordinary place full of extraordinary people. It's not the only such place by, you know, by any means. But being as iconic as it is, I um, felt a deep need to understand some of the anomalies and missed opportunities and kind of larger puzzlements that the university seemed to have a great deal of difficulty coming uh, to grips with. And so that title, you know, Excellence Without a Soul, was supposed to say um, two things at once. The excellence part was not a, you know, was not a, not a, not a joke, and not a, not a, uh, um, you know, wasn't meant to be ironic. It was, it was real. There, there are extraordinary programs in the sciences, in technology, in uh, in the liberal arts, in uh, in the humanities, in languages, and 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 you know, Harvard really does strive to be the best in everything it does. And by certain definition of best, it can call itself that. Um, but uh, my sense over the over the years, having, for example, witnessed multiple curricular reviews, and this is not just about curricular reviews, but curricular reviews is where, you know, faculty are supposed to come together and try to, you know, figure out what the larger framework of the edu their educational program is what are they really trying to accomplish at the end of um, you know four years of having students largely captive to them for I mean Harvard's an almost 100 percent residential institution in normal years anyway this is a particular year that we're discussing uh, we're, we're, that we're recording during is not a normal year, but ordinarily it's a, so you have complete control really over uh, not only the curriculum, but the daily lives of your students. And, um, you know, I found very little discussion of the kind of deeper meaning that the education was supposed to be providing to students' lives and they, their sense of their uh, future and so on. And far too much, you know, as I, you know, as I like to say, you know, if you have a, for example, if you have a, you know, a curricular review committee and, a, and you put seven faculty members on it, you know, guess how many requirements there are going to be at the end of the 
committee's months-long deliberations. There are going to be exactly seven requirements. You know, it's just a, a lot of a lot of uh, dividing up of academic turf of you know how many hours you know for my field or your field or you know what whatever it is and uh, so i was disappointed that that higher education seems to have turned into a kind of um uh kind of business where academics are mostly supposed to be uh defending their the turf of their guild, as I say, you know, the, there's a computer science guild and there's a, you know, there's a, there's an English literature guild and so on. And, and, and our primary loyalty is not even to our institution, not to, you know, the enduring enlightenment values that, you know, the academy was set up to preserve but to the you know preservation and advancement of our particular discipline and so the sole metaphor um was not supposed to mean anything um religious or even explicitly moral or anything like that it it, it just meant what's the what's the um what's the deeper uh you know backbone of the whole thing okay we understand what the you know what the visible exterior of the education looks like it's you know so many courses in that and you got to have a phys ed requirement and whatever it is you know we we get that but you know what's the thing that's that's supporting and holding the whole thing together and and when you strip away you know you know uh, um the uh the uh, uh one of the one harvard president uh actually said that an education is what's left after everything that's been learned has been forgotten. And I always love this, you know, this, this metaphor, you know, you go to, I mean, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I certainly don't, you know, I, if I go look at my college notebooks, you know, a lot of what I learned in the sense that I passed the exams in them and so on, I've forgotten. And yet I really feel that I got a real education. There are parts of my education that's, that have completely formed who I am. So what are those things for the generation of universities that we have today and the generations of students that they're teaching? I was thinking about your use of the word soul and, and the way you, you describe that, I think, in, in the book is, is about coherence, uh, it, that it's, 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 a, it's something that makes your life coherent. What is the soul of it? What is the guiding understanding? And I think that this is a very well-chosen word, Harry, because uh, for all of the uh, money spent and research budgets and uh, uh, I don't want to say climbing walls because I know that's an easy, it's an easy way of... <laughs> I think they're patsy. I think that I don't think climbing walls are in style anymore anyway. I think gonna, that's a dated metaphor, I'm afraid. <laughs> that, I, that, that's right. Uh, but, uh, you know... Despite all of this uh, immense amount of money spent at the the top, uh, the most prestigious universities in the country, one has an abiding sense that uh, you know, are they really providing for the student that which which is most mean, meaningful in in the long run? And uh, so, I'd like to ask you, you know, having having spent you know more than fifty years, I think it is 
in total of your life at, at, at Harvard, having taught thousands of students, having befriended many, many, many of those and heard their stories, what advice would do you give to young people as they're they're entering in and starting out on their their educational trajectories so that they'll focus not simply on those things that they think they should focus on and you know they're probably very job focused for understandable reasons um, but so that they don't miss out on what could be most meaningful them to them in the long term yeah so 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 First of all, I just want to pick up on one thing that you um, that you said there. It's not, you know, it's not the first thing I would say to uh, a uh, you know an incoming uh, college student. But it's in, but 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 since since we're um, moving around on this subject, the, the, it is important to understand the 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 reason why this coherence. Is lacking is that the uh, incentive system for faculty doesn't support it. So faculty are promoted, hired, promoted, tenured, and rewarded for teaching and research, but they're it's really for research in their field. And teaching in their field, and you know, not for, um, not for trying to make larger connections with other parts of the, um, you know, the uh, the life of the mind, um, and you know, so I've, you know, I've, I've, I've explained to junior faculty, my junior faculty colleagues at Harvard, that, um, you know. They're going to have to work at making their own connections to other disciplines and other people. Forget about even you know scientifically, just human connections across disciplines, because they're going to be rewarded not for what if they're in computer science, they're they're not going to be rewarded for what the English professors at Harvard think of them. They're going to be rewarded for what the computer science professors at Stanford think of them. That's that's the important thing, right? So, so that is absolutely, you know, tends to disaggregate the university into a kind of, you know, federation of academic disciplines and academic departments that, you know, if they don't build walls around themselves exactly, I don't want to exaggerate the nature of the problem. It's just, it's, it's, uh, you know, you, 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 as a, as a, as a faculty member, you have to, um, you have to recognize that anything you do to try to teach the whole person, you know, draw on your own knowledge or continue learning yourself way outside your field so that you can continue to enrich your teaching and scholarship with increasing understanding of the way the larger world works and the larger academic world works, the intellectual world works, you know, you're sort of doing that on your own time. That's because that's not really what you're being paid to do. You're being paid to be a superb scholar in your field. And, a, and if you're lucky, <laughs> you're, a, uh, you're being also rewarded for being a good teacher in your field. So now to move to your question, now, what is a student supposed to do, you know, you know when confronted with this? 
And it's really, I mean, edu- you know, higher education is really a paradoxical and self-contradictory enterprise, okay? Because first of all, the only way to get prepared to go to college is to go through a series of very well-defined steps. I mean, they're defined by the testing bureaus, by the by the the requirements of of graduating from your high school. You have to get you know so many credits in this, that, and the other thing, and you go through a very rigid uh, you know program. And you know, as we know, there's a whole industry about how to get into college, and people are really you know very concerned about that if they you know if they if they do this rather than that, that that's going to reduce their chances of getting into, you know, Harvard or MIT by 5%. So you don't want to do that. So there's a, a, a very elaborate planning process that, in, you know, that, 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 that happens in preparation for getting to college. And the first thing that you have to understand when you get to college is that you are not going to keep, if you want to get anything out of your college education, the last thing you want to do is to keep doing the sort of thing that you did to get into college. You don't want to keep following a pre-programmed path with you know, well-defined benchmarks for success and failure. Now, colleges have those steps, of course. You, know, you have to get so many degree credits and all that, and you, know, you have to take certain courses here and there. But the, the 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 first thing you have to understand is that your objective in college is to do as much as you can to prepare yourself to understand who you are and what you're going to become in the long run not in not in four years you know so you know it it, it, it it's it, it, there are people i mean i, I again I, I should begin by acknowledging this that, you know there are people who decide when they're 18 that they're going to be the world's greatest neurosurgeon and they do everything that's required to become a great neurosurgeon and they become a great neurosurgeon or people who are going to become concert pianists and they spend their entire undergraduate career preparing to be a great concert pianist and they become a great concert. But that's, those people, you know, we don't really need to talk to those people because those people are going to take care of themselves. They're going to be determined. They're not going to look left or right and they're going to do what they're doing. Most people, most educated people, wind up in life doing things that they had no idea they were going to be doing when they were 18 years old. So how does this, you know, how does this happen? You, you know, you have a lot of control over your, uh, over your, over your choices. Um, so you have freedom. I mean, one of the most disappointing thing for me, when I talk to students, one of the things that I try to deprogram students from, uh, you know, from thinking is that um, they can't do this or that for this reason or that reason. Um, obviously, some choices are constrained. You know, you if you can't afford to go to college, you can't afford to go to college. And, you, you know, then you have to take time off until you can afford to do it or, or whatever but um but people without even sometimes you know uh doing the introspection needing needed to break free of 
parental expectations or social expectations or, you know, people like me don't become engineers or people like me don't become artists or whatever it is. They just accept that that's, you know, they are what they are. They're going to be a, you know, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer. Those are the three possibilities. And maybe I get to choose one of the three, but you know what my roommate is doing, even though it looks cool, you know, that's like not what people, that's not what people with my background or, you know, people with my parents or whatever it is, that's, that's not what they do. So the notion that you actually have freedom is something that's extremely precious. And, you know, and then the third thing is, is that, so, you know, so you, you don't really know where you're going at the beginning. You have a lot of freedom to make decisions that will affect that. But then the third thing is that none of this can be perfectly planned. That, um, that you know, life and certainly life during the formative years when you're able to make these decisions is full of opportunities that, you know, if you have your eyes open, you will try and maybe fall in love with or, you know, or, or, or decide not, but that, 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 um, that there's a strong tendency among young people who are reasonably enough insecure. They're surrounded by all these driven, motivated people who seem to know where they're going. They're faking it. Probably half of them. They don't know any better than you do. Um, to, uh, you know, to try to, you know, put, to put blinders on at exactly the stage in your life when you should have your eyes wide open. And, um, uh, the, the, uh, you know, it's the rare, I mean, I had a, I had a, 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 a colleague one time who, uh, had just become a advisor of first year students and, 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 and said, uh, called me up and said, you know, what am I going to do? I have this student, he, he said he was going to study computer science in his application, and he's now arrived and says, <clears throat> I'm not going to study computer science. I want to be a, I don't want to be a, uh, a graphic artist. <clears throat> and uh, I'm a computer science professor. How am I, you know, what kind of advice can I, can I, can I give him? And I say, you, you, congratulate him for most people wouldn't know be able to make that decision until they'd wasted half or three quarters or all of their undergraduate years as a person who was finally you know allowed himself to you know acknowledge that what he was sort of brought up to do wasn't actually what he you know what he what he wants to do that that's a you know we can all we all have those experiences where there are openings um, that we decide to take a chance on or pass on taking a chance on. And there's, there's no better time to make mistakes than the years when you're, you're in college. Because almost any mistake, certainly of you know, deciding to study this or that or work with this group or that group, you know, you're going to learn something from it and your downside risks are extremely low. I think it's beautiful the way you put that, Harry, the, the, to take a chance on. I mean, in the end, you know, the thing that we 
are called as human beings to take a chance on is ourselves. I mean, there's there's, right. there's no one else in the world, in all of world history, who can live the life that you have in you to live. And I think you've wonderfully brought out how there it takes a kind of courage. I mean, you can have liberties that you never exercise, and then in a certain sense, you're, you're not you're not you're not actually in a way free if you don't exercise them. But it takes a certain uh, courage to uh, to exercise your liberty to think about what you are you are made for. And then um, you need and then you need and then you need some. So you need, and then you need some raw material to work with. That's the other thing. You you know, if you, you know, if you, if you don't really know very much except what you were in your high school textbooks, you know, and you, you try to look inside yourself, you, you may not find much to work with, but you know, this is why people in college should read novels. One of, one of my, one of my sadnesses about, um, uh, about undergraduate education now is that nobody reads novels anymore. Okay. You don't read novels because you know, they're too long and everybody just wants to takes the, you know, the, uh, you know, the Cliff's Notes versions and, you know, and, and, uh, and I, you know, and, 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 and so on and so forth. But the reason you read novels, and it doesn't have to be novels, it can be short stories, but the reason why you read fiction is so you can crawl inside other people's skin for a while and, you know, just like, you know, shut off the lights, you know, get away from your email, don't answer the things from the text messages and, you know, just, you know, in the privacy of your darkened room, read something about people who led, led different lives than you. Fictional people, are, you know, it's also good to learn about real people, but fictional people is fine because, you know, when you read fiction, the, 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 the writer has crafted it to, to sort of, you know, make you uncomfortable with the fact that you are trying to, you know, imagine the conflicts that these people faced so um so and you're right i mean that that it's it's much more comfortable to say uh, you know i'm going to be a biochemist and i know what i need to do to be a biochemist i got to learn all of these organic molecular structures right i mean you can't be a biochemist and and there's so much of that you know it's going to take me until you know until spring break just to master all that stuff so happily now i don't have to face any of the you know misgivings i have that this all seems utterly pointless to me really but you know, happily i don't have to think about that because i got so many you know i got so many molecular structures that i have to memorize so you know you gotta you know this is why i i i really believe in general education and broad you know a broad education where you get because you never know which of the many things that you don't know that you might be exposed to and learn are going to be the things that you know are going to kind of stick with you or are going to you know ignite the spark in you i mean this is the this is the uh that wonderful phrase from uh uh from plutarch that i that i so love about uh education where plutarch says you know the mind is not a vessel to be filled it's a fire to be lit fire to be kindled you know and 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 uh which is which is true. I mean, it's the same thing as the as the other thing I I I I, I said about education is what's left after all has been learned, has been forgotten, right? That that it's, this notion that you know that education is an accumulation of knowledge, which you know 
you know, creating some kind of store that you draw on in, in later life after you stop learning is, is completely wrong. It's, 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 it's a, the education is a process of creating a, uh, you know, a, some kind of dynamic engagement between you and yourself and the, the, the world of ideas. So, but it's, but it's, it's, you know, it's hard, and I think it's actually gotten harder in the internet age, I have to say. I'm, I'm a computer scientist. I spend half my life on the internet. I couldn't live without it. You know, I, you know, I love it. <laughs> you know, I had both Gates and Zuckerberg as students of mine. You know, I, I, I bear some responsibility maybe for, you know, for the, uh, you know, for the, for the fact that we live our lives on the, on the, uh, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the digital world. But it's one of the troubles with it is that, you know, the constant binging of alerts from text messages, you should find some time during the day and during the week where you just set all that stuff aside because you can't, you can't think about another world if you can't think deeply about another world, about another way of being, another another person that you could become, a person that, uh, you know, you can't think about how, you know, some literary figure dealt with his or her problems if you're constantly having to respond to text messages. You're just constantly being jerked back to the here and now when you want to be back in the 17th century or in the you know in the mind of uh, of a of a of a of a of a figure you're reading about as a way of understanding yourself and you're if if you're constantly being re recentered to your relationship with the person who texts you 10 times a day you know, friend, parent, whoever it is, um, you're 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 never going to break free of the the person that you arrived at college as. You're 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 just going to you know carry that along. So you need some time. I mean, I really I'm a you know I'm a believer in you know leaving your cell phone behind and taking long walks. You know, once a week at least. Think about you know try to take stock of yourself. What have you really you know what's been good this week what's been bad this week um what could you do more of if you could find the time um what can you shed you know you join some organization because you thought you were going to learn about politics by doing it but it turns out you're all you're doing is taking lunch orders or whatever you know buying the pizza and that's so you know we are college students who are ambitious and this is i guess what i'm really thinking of you know who are, who who are prepared to think about these things at all very often fall into the trap of you know over programming themselves over committing themselves um exactly so they don't have to think about the um the things that they don't understand about themselves because those are too too scary to think about i think the 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 worst side of this, because uh, I think you've, you've very beautifully brought out how, you know, thinking about these things in the past or these problems, they, they could be a math set. I mean, it could be these things that you need to think about, that that also becomes a way of uh, of illuminating or understanding, thinking about yourself. And the worst of the the these constant distractions 
is that we can't we can't hear ourselves. We can't hear ourselves. Right. Like you say, we sometimes say to use the phrase, you know, we can't hear myself think. And what's going on in that? I mean, we can't actually listen to ourselves. And the the liberal arts, you know, uh, in their in their most fundamental sense, are 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 about having the freedom to think. Right. And it's amazing the extent to which these technological distractions, which are just like it's, I describe it as my metaphor is a tsunami. It's like a tsunami. You can't you can't easily just stand against this. It's everywhere, baked into the fabric of our of our work. Of our it's they're in our pockets all the time. Um, uh, the worst of it is that we, the, here we are, you know, in a way, the richest and freest human beings in history, um, uh, on the on the average, and here we are uh, in a situation in which uh, we are willingly depriving ourselves of that that liberty that other generations in the past would have given anything to have just right. a few minutes of. Right. Right. Um, right. Right. And, 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 you know, and again, it, it, it's, 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 it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't get any, uh, it doesn't get any easier. I mean, the, 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 you know, I really believe the college years are really precious because, you know, when, you know, when you have, when you're responsible to other people, people that you're working for, people that you're, uh, you know, that you, you, your, your family, your children, you know, the, all the things that happen in, you know, in, in adulthood, you know, there are good reasons why you can't say, oh, I'm just going to take a walk for two hours and think about myself. No, you've got product, you've got to ship or whatever it is, you know, there, there, there's, uh, but you know, that, you know, you've got, you got homework to do in college, but not enough to, um, tie, tie you up 24 hours a day. And there's, there's, there's plenty of time it just takes the will to to think about yourself, and that, and that's this is a really good thing for students to think about, you know, after they've been in at college for a month or two. You know, if you get yourself in the situation where your friends are worried about you because they sent you a text message twenty minutes ago and you haven't responded to it yet. Okay, you just gotta look back and say, "How absurd is this, right? How absurd is this that 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 you're, you know, that you feel badly, you feel so badly that you're letting your friends down by not responding to their text messages instantly, that you're not giving yourself the time to think about what the hell you really want to do with your life, um, ever, you know. So, and the only because you know." People are going to text you all the time. The only way to get away from it is, you know, just set aside some time, put it down, you know, read a book, take a walk, uh, read the the uh, read the listings of what courses there are. Go into a bookstore and just, you know, look at a hundred books and pick one out that looks the the one that looks the most cool, and you know, take it home and read it. There's just you know, allow your mind to stay open and and influenceable. I, I mean, none of this is. I'm. You know, I, I don't want to suggest that any of this is 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 easy because you know there's the, you know, there's the opposite syndrome also, which is that people become socially isolated. And again, in this particular year, there's there's plenty of good reasons to worry about that. You know, you don't want to be, you know, so introverted that you devote all your time just to thinking about yourself 
either. But, um, but you you know the, the the main thing is to is to is to keep your mind, you know, active on in thinking about the larger questions of life and to give it some raw material with which to work to help it think about that. Let's talk about the context in which that can happen. I had the opportunity to interview the mathematician and physicist Freeman Dyson before he died. And you know, oh. we, we talked, talked a good deal about his uh, early education at Winchester. And the, the, it just sounds as though in that period in the, in the 30s, and perhaps even still today, from what I hear, Winchester was a place of just remarkable, a really fostering a, a spirited freedom in approach to life. And, you know, it, it's sort of comes to this question of, you know, you, you can't think thoughts that you don't think you can think, or are you, you are unlikely to become something you don't think you can become. And so there's a kind of underlying, let's say adventuresomeness or willingness to think what, uh, or, or to go or to do what hasn't been gone or done in, uh, in the past uh, or even by you, perhaps, most importantly. So there's a kind of psychological predisposition uh, or orientation that freedom demands. And I, I want to ask you about this through uh, your 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 thoughts about sort of college life, the kind of community that uh, fosters this. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't think it's any secret that though at one point in time, Undergraduate life, in particular, was was you know pretty pretty uh, adventuresome and even uh, uh, downright wild. I mean, there are stories of people you know burning furniture in the quadrangles at uh, in the courts at, at Oxford. Um, and I I know somewhere you've you've written I've forgotten exactly where it is. You have a wonderful quotation from William James, who said of Harvard, "quote Our undisciplinables." Are our proudest product, end quote, and yes. I, and you know here we are in the 21st century. It's 2020 as we record this, and you know everyone likes to think that we're oh we're so uh, we're so over the the moralism and the puritanism of the past, and we're we're also able to be you know, progressive on all of these questions. And yet, uh, I can't speak for Harvard, but I know it's the case at many universities that life on campus has, has never been as nanny statified and in a certain sense as, as, as suppressed uh, in history. And so I'd love to have your, because I know you, you, you thought very deeply about what the character of undergraduate experience was actually like at Harvard. Yes. I'd love to have your thoughts on this matter. Yeah, so that's a great, uh, you know, that's a great question. And again, it's a, you know, it's a, one of these things that's a study in, it's a study in contradictions. Um, the really interesting people, and there are lots of them around, um, are, are prepared to take risks. They're maybe not, maybe fearless would be too strong a term. None of us is fearless, but they are uh, prepared to, you know, to, uh, uh, do things that are slightly um, outside the lines of what they, uh, you know, of, of what will make it easiest for the institution to manage them, right? And it's one of the, again, sadder aspects of academic life these days that um, this has so affected 
speech in particular that um, we now do a lot of hammering down of nail heads that are slightly not flush with the surface as it were you know that we're we're all you know being trained to be um you know pegs in holes and you know if they if the if the fit is not perfect you 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 whack it you know whether that just means that you've you know used the wrong pronoun or you've used the the wrong ethnic description or you know or or you've said something that is um considered to be something at which someone is going to take offense so so i prefer an institutional culture where people are uh more relaxed about what undergraduates can can do and 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 say that's an ongoing project and you know the the one of the difficulties aside from that difficulty on the institutional side that there are um there seem to be an increasingly constrained vision of how students are supposed to behave and how they're supposed to be spending their time the the other side of it is that um you know this is a paradox that i have really tried to get my own institution and and and, and others to recognize in recent years which is that there's been a we haven't fully taken stock and reacted to the consequences of the progress that higher education has made towards opening its doors to students who didn't used to go to college at all, um, students whose parents were relatively uneducated or, you know, that who were from school systems that are not the best in America um, and and so on. And, you know, at least this experience at places like mine, which places that are highly selective institutions, um, you know, those students have gained admission by dint of hard work and sacrifice, their own and their families. And they're often very afraid of doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, and somehow jeopardizing the gains that they and their families have worked so hard to achieve. And that caution is discouraging to an exercise of, you know, freedom and choice. They don't want to take the wrong course. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to talk to, you know, be in the wrong group. Um, even when they think the structures that they're supposed to work within, you know, make no no sense at all. And I and this is very you know this is sad to me. I mean, I've I've gotten you know I've talked to, I mean, you know, again, this is just a Harvard story. That's Harvard's got its own peculiarities, but you know, I've talked to students who were alienated at Harvard. You know, they didn't think they belonged. They found some other students they they were getting support from. You know, they joined a women's club or something like that. And then Harvard came down and said, no women's clubs. You know, well, why can't we have women's clubs? That's another, it's a piece of, you know, Harvard trivia that we don't need to, you know, 
go go into, but they were sort of broken off from there. So there were all of these subterranean groups that students join in order to, you know, find kindness. I mean, this is a word I haven't used in this in this discussion so far, so far, but is you know incredibly important because we we we've been speaking very much on an intellectual plane up till now on about human, very human affairs, but. Um, everybody needs to find um, those uh, friends and among faculty and staff models that they can that they can reach out to to help them on this journey of discovery about their own souls that they're you know that they're engaged in, and you know the bureaucratic structures for this you know. This is your advisor. This is the person you're supposed to go to for advice. If you don't relate to that person, you got to find somebody else to talk to. It you know it could be, you know it could be anybody. It could be the janitor for heaven's sake. You know they 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 there there are lots of people around to talk to about your about your 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 uh, that that you may find you know resonance with, and you can have some somebody to share your your you know your voyage of discovery with. Um, Institutions increasingly are bureaucratized. The bureaucratization, it has an explanation. They're, they're far more regulated entities than they used to be in, in some ways. There are legal liabilities. There are students who do things that they're not supposed to do and, and so on and so forth. There are difficulties in dealing with campus police forces and so on. We understand why some of the freewheelingness that we used to associate with college life are, are no longer there and and it's it's not altogether bad that that uh, that some of the some of the chaos of college life is is gone but you can't be on a voyage of discovery if you only go places that are that are that are known and you just follow all of the road signs all the time one thing you've written about Harry is the that the founding of Harvard and indeed of many other institutions of higher education in the United States was undertaken specifically with regard to 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 certain civic or civilizational goods the 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 sense that we needed the institutions like this in order to to have our culture our our uh, uh, in order that we could we might all lead lead lives broadly speaking of of freedom and 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 dignity. So that was there in the in the founding, and you've you've certainly written uh, uh, extensively about the civic duties uh, that universities have. And I know at at Harvard, you've you've been a a let's say a, a you've strongly resisted some some trends. Let's put it that way uh, to suppress freedom of association or freedom of speech. Um, do you think universities have forgotten or even? To some degree, betrayed their underlying civic duty. I mean, here we are in a in a in a, in a kind of civilizational uh, crisis of partisan rancor, of uh, you know, d d a deeply disturbing time, I would say. And uh, it's not obvious to me that uh, universities are uh, playing a role that. Uh, is making that situation better and not worse. Uh, how do you see these things? That's a yeah. We could we could spend a, an hour just on that just on that subject. So um, 
So again, I think there, there. I think everything you said is true, and I think that. But I think there are, um, you know, to understand to understand, it, you got to sort of understand what the incentives are and how we, you know, how we how we got this way. So one of the things that, you know, distresses me is that um, if you actually think about what a university is, it it it, it you know a research university, a, you know, a, a place like the, the the great american universities are they have this dual purpose which is one which is to preserve civilization as you say if you go back and read harvard's charter it's it it says right in it or not i guess not the charter but the new england fruits first fruits from you know 1650 you know it says that they you know they harvard was built to uh I'm not going to get the exact wording right to advance knowledge and uh, and and preserve it to posterity. Um, you know, fearing to leave an illiterate ministry when our present minister shall lie in the dust. Okay, so they founded Harvard because there was no guarantee that there were going to be any more ships coming over from England. The knowledge they had with them. The ministers who were, who were who who they had were the only ones they could guarantee would be there. And if they, you know, if there was a if they died and another ship didn't arrive, you know, there wasn't going to be any learning. This was church learning was what a lot of what passed for learning in the 17th century. So, but I mean, that's you know, I mean, we know we don't need to go to the church. Harvard Charter to get that we we understand that's what that's that's why we have you know departments of of Egyptian hieroglyphics because you know nobody else is there's no other institution that's going to preserve how to understand our cultural heritage except except the university but we simultaneously have the job of creating the future we are scientific enterprises that have made you know, incredible contributions to the uh, to human welfare through our medical discoveries, our scientific discoveries, and you know, and and our thinking about philosophical and political issues, and so on. Okay, but so these two things are you know in something of tension. But my sense is that the the one that gets rewarded is more the second than the first, and so it's hard to keep the obligation to cultural transmission alive and this is why it's i think it's particularly affected you know teaching and 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 scholarship in the humanities where you know again we we have a system where the highest praise you can give any professor who's a candidate for a permanent appointment is that they completely change the way we think about x whatever their field is right well, you know, if all of the incentive is for completely changing the way we think about things, then there is a disincentive for helping to preserve what we thought of in the past. In the specific thing that you're raising, which is crucially important, is the preservation of the notion of democratic self-governance by, you know, uh, free people who work out their differences with each other and um, carry on the difficult 
activity of democratic self-governance. So um, you can't have a democracy without an educated citizenry, right? And and you know the and and if you go back and you read what was um, you know the the things that citizens used to debate and discuss at the time of the founding of the United States of America. You know, we actually, I mean, the Federalist Papers were written to be read and argued about by ordinary citizens, you know? Should it be this way, that way? Well, you know, if you do it this way, this might happen, and, you know, so on and so forth. These were not, these were, you know, they were published anonymously. They were, they were given out for debate and discussion in the process of establishing the basic principles and and rules on which the democracy runs university you know you know human lifetime is what it is you know 80 90 years and 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 everything can disappear in a generation if our understanding of how to keep our cultural including in particular our civic inheritance going is ignored for a generation it will it you know it'll disappear so i i do think that's a very important role that universities in their combined uh, american universities in their combined attempt a to be always forward looking always looking to you know create what's coming next rather than in in preference to preserving what's been received and b to be globalized to treat the United States as just, you know, another country, one among many, and, you know, I'm all for global view on, you know, on everything, but we're actually, the whole system under which we're operating, where we have these freedoms to think, where we have these, um, you know, the opportunity to actually say to students who arrive in college, you know, you don't have to be what you thought you were going to be. You know, those are all American institutions. Those are not, those are not global values. Those are American values. And um, so I think American institutions have, a, uh, have an obligation to do a better job than they are doing to preserving, you know, kind of the, 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 the seeds from which um, the uh, freedoms we enjoy flow grow i guess i should say seeds from which the freedoms we enjoy grow yeah one thing that's concerning me very much right now is uh i suppose captured with the the phrase uh cancel culture but uh you know one can put this in any number of different ways i mean the idea that that there are that you know someone can be uh either tarred by guilt with association or uh uh or the, the very notion that there are are thoughts that cannot be thought, and of course this is a, this is this is you know, what we're dealing with in this country here is are, are are not fundamentally that there are huge numbers of people who are defending things that we we agreed long ago are immoral, whether it's discrimination on the basis of race or sex or or, or, or whatever. These are widely, nearly universally shared values. Um, so we're 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 not. We're not dealing with an you know an outgrowth of of anything along those lines, uh, and yet the tenor of our culture right now is this this 
as if there are unimaginable gulfs between human beings, as if there's no, I mean, it's been pointed out recently that, uh, of course, in the, in the, in the wake of the, the death of uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg, that uh, she and uh, uh, Scalia, who had very different right. views on many things, uh, were apparently very, very close friends. And, uh, I, you know, and it's just, it's what I think I find very sad and disturbing is that fans of Scalia or fans of Ginsburg have a hard time imagining that in their own lives. I mean, somehow these people that they admire were able to disclose a deeper frame of reference uh, and actually commitments to a political good that was comprehensive of their differences. I mean, that's what the court was or is. And uh, what I'm trying to get at here is the sense in which the, 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 it's not even particularly this commitment or that commitment, though, of course, you know, freedom of, of speech is the First Amendment of the American Constitution for a very good reason. But uh, the, the, very, the very possibility of our all being in this together is based on an understanding that, you know, we, we, we have a shared horizon that is comprehensive of our differences, radical and intense and beautiful and wondrous and difficult that those, 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 those may be. Um, I just don't see how our Western culture, as it's been described in, your, in the, the American uh, context that we're speaking of, uh, can survive without that. I, I'm, I'm I, you know, so I'm going to, Try to. I'm going to try to end on an optimistic note, and you know, um, the the best curriculum that Harvard ever put together was the one that came out of the ashes of the Second World War, and it was it it. it and I I have I like to think. I mean, I think it's a fairly accurate view. I, I wasn't there while they were putting it together, and it was already kind of dying by the time I got to you know, time I got to college, but it seems that the near catastrophe of losing civilization, which was certainly a possibility in the darkest days of World War II, and the existence on the Harvard faculty of so many immigrants in particular, but Americans also, who had been directly, you know, up close and personal with the threat to, to civilization, that that um, galvanized the institution into a period where faculty looked at each other and said, you know, we almost lost it all. We almost lost it all, not we Harvard, but you know, all of human civilization could have been wiped out. And if we have any obligation to the future, it's not to make sure that Sanskrit or category theory is preserved you know, to the next generation of PhD students. It's to make sure that nothing like that ever happens again, that the students that we're teaching are so inspired by the beauty and wonder of human knowledge and human understanding that they will commit their lives to try to preserving it to the to the future and that's what our job is and we've got to put somehow use that framework in putting together you know 
um, a uh, an educational program that will um, leave students with that kind of respect, admiration, and and um, intense desire to preserve the products of civilization. So my fondest hope is that the current crisis that we're in, global pandemic, you know, political upheaval, deep partisanship, that maybe some academics will be similarly motivated. And if they're not, maybe the current generation of 18, 19, and 20-year-olds will themselves be to put pressure on the university to give them uh, a meaningful education that will inform their lives and will you know, create a, a framework for passing on the wonderful products of civilization that we have been given onto the future. I think that's... Uh... Very importantly said, Harry, I think we should never lose sight of the fact that all of the uh, rancor and partisanship and nihilism is precisely what gives rise to intense and yes. intensifying of the longing for uh, another way, for, for truth, for, for reconciliation, for redemption. And so I think we, we must absolutely, and this is, of course, the entire insight uh, it, under which Ralston College is, uh, has been founded, is precisely that there is quietly and not so quietly, perhaps, arriving a deep desire for, uh, for a better way. Yes, and good for you for doing it. It's exactly, it's exactly right. I, I, I wish other, I hope other institutions notice what you're doing and are inspired to do likewise. Well, Harry, thank you very much uh, for your for your time today. Thank you for all that uh, you have done, uh, you are doing now and have done in your career for transmitting, uh, not only transmitting the ideals of our civilization, but I think more importantly, awakening countless young people to what is in what is in themselves, to helping guide them along their way to live lives of truth and meaning and dignity. Uh, so thank you very much for your time today, and I look forward to speaking again before long. Thanks so much, Stephen, and best wishes. You've been listening to the Ralston College Podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's guest was Professor Harry Lewis of Harvard University. Books Professor Lewis has edited, authored, or co-authored include What is College For? The Purpose of Higher Education, Blown to Bits, Your Life, Liberty, and Happiness After the Digital Explosion, Baseball as a Second Language, and the book we mentioned in today's conversation, Excellence Without a Soul, How a Great University Forgot Education, which has now been resubtitled Does Liberal Education Have a Future? You may also wish to follow his wide-ranging and refreshingly reflective blog, as I do, at harry-lewis.blogspot.com. If you'd like an example of the more boisterous, undisciplinable atmosphere of earlier epochs, not even that long ago, of higher education, look up the YouTube video of the 1958 investiture of James Robertson Justice as the rector of the University of Edinburgh. 
in which Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, sits smiling in his majestic uniform as rolls of toilet paper are thrown, unfurling in the air, before coming to rest at his feet. It's unbelievable by today's standards, which are in fact both repressive and boring by historic ones. We always love to hear from you, our listeners, so please feel free to leave us a review or to send us a note. You can also join our efforts to renew, reform, and reimagine higher education at www.ralston.ac. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.